It's the Victorian Variety Show. When the cloth was removed, the butler brought in a huge silver vessel of rare and curious workmanship, which he placed before the squire. Its appearance was hailed with acclamation, being the wassail bowl so renowned in Christmas festivity. The contents had been prepared by the squire himself, for it was a beverage in the skillful mixture of which he particularly prided himself alleging that it was too abstruse and complex for the comprehension of an ordinary servant. It was a potation, indeed, that might well make the heart of a toper leap within him, being composed of the richest and raciest wines, highly spiced and sweetened, with roasted apples bobbing about the surface. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, my bi-weekly look at a person, trend, or phenomenon from or closely associated with the Victorian era that I happen to find interesting, and hopefully you do too. My name is Marissa, and the quote I just read is taken from The Christmas Dinner, which appeared in a collection of stories and essays called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, by American writer Washington Irving. These writings, which, if you're familiar with Irving, include The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, were originally published in serial form in 1819 and 1820. But although they preceded the Victorian era somewhat, I am including excerpts from Irving's Christmas piece here because I recently read the collection and it's still fresh in my mind. I had never really read Irving before, even though I took an American literature class in college. I don't remember us discussing him. And even though I decided to read him now mainly out of curiosity, I have to say that I enjoyed reading him much more than I'd anticipated. And unexpectedly, a day or two after I started doing research for this episode, I came across the Christmas dinner and I was like, Hey, didn't I just read an article about some of this? I love when my reading coincides with research for this podcast. And I do think Irving's piece is relevant to some of what I'm about to discuss. Which, since this is coming out on Christmas Eve here in the States, is a few holiday traditions associated with the Victorian era. Some of which may come as something of a surprise. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you may have already heard the episode that I did last year on Victorian-era holiday cards. So, as much as I love that topic, I'm not going to go too deeply into it this time around. But, if you haven't heard it yet, I will include a link in the show notes, along with all of the resources that I looked in putting this episode together. Before I go any further, I do think it's important to acknowledge that we do have the Victorian era to thank for popularizing much of what we commonly associate with Christmas, such as exchanging gifts, decorating homes and trees, and perhaps caroling, things like that. Although some traditions, such as the Christmas feast, 
can be traced back to the Middle Ages or earlier. For the most part, Christmas wasn't really considered a holiday, let alone one that could be beneficial for businesses, until the 1830s and 40s. According to an article from the BBC website called History of Christmas, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were instrumental in introducing a number of timeless Christmas traditions to the public, including the Christmas tree, which was reminiscent of those Albert had seen growing up in Germany. And of course, Charles Dickens' 1843 novella, A Christmas Carol, helped to popularize themes that we still associate or should associate with Christmas, such as family, goodwill, and charity. And as it turns out, a major influence on Dickens in writing his classic holiday tale was the aforementioned Irving. In Dickens and Irving, a tale of two Christmas tales, Elizabeth L. Bradley notes that Dickens, who was all of eight years old when the sketchbook appeared, became such a fan of Irving's that as an adult, he wrote Irving what was essentially a fan letter, expressing a desire to travel with Irving to the English estate where Irving's Christmas stories were set. However, perhaps because the concept of quote-unquote Christmas as we know it today was still relatively new, people in the Victorian era drew on some ancient traditions in some cases. And there was quite a bit of room for experimentation during this time as well. Which is why, as I mentioned in my examination of early holiday cards last year, you saw a lot of dark humor that might strike many people today as strange. As a result, a number of holiday practices that were popular during the Victorian era are largely unknown today. And as was the case with the cards, might seem a bit peculiar to some people. This started at the dinner table. Although the centerpiece of the meal, which, at least among members of more well-to-do households, was usually turkey or beef, is unlikely to raise eyebrows today, in 11 odd Victorian Christmas traditions, Keith Johnston notes that it could be prepared in unconventional and, for some, unappetizing ways. For example, many wealthy Victorians were apparently fond of turkey galantine, or galantine, in which the bird was stuffed, boiled, and served cold and covered in a gelatinous substance like aspic. The meat was often served with side dishes that are a far cry from familiar ones like cranberry sauce and mashed or sweet potatoes. Johnston cites as examples mock turtle soup, stewed rockfish, and fermenty, which can be found in cookery books from as far back as the late 1300s. And in an article called A Victorian Christmas, Fermenty and Snapdragon, Danielle Ellis describes fermenty as, quote, a type of wheat porridge that could be served with either sweet or savory dishes, end quote. Because turkey and beef tended to be pricey, Laura Martissiute explains in 10 Strange Christmas Traditions from the Victorian Era that goose served as a substitute for many poorer families. However, 
Because even a goose was too expensive for most working class families to purchase themselves, a number of quote-unquote goose clubs existed in towns and cities. Those who joined might pay a few pence a week during the year, which the club would then use to purchase a goose just before Christmas. Marticiu notes that local bakers would often stay open late on Christmas to do the cooking. And for those who couldn't even afford to join a goose club, fortunately, oysters were cheap and abundant. They were often served as fast food on the streets or in stews and pies, and were also popular alongside a pint of beer in public houses. And for what it's worth, even though it seems like Marticiut refers to most of the customs in the article as quote-unquote strange in the sense that they may seem unusual compared with current customs, as opposed to something that's strange that has negative connotations, as someone who generally prefers seafood to beef and poultry, I see nothing strange about eating oysters on a holiday. And in fact, oysters and ale in a public house sounds much tastier to me than a stuffed turkey glazed with aspic or a goose. As far as beverages were concerned, it seems wassail, or as I've heard it pronounced, wassail, can be traced back to pagan harvest traditions, such as one described by Johnston that involved saluting apple trees and pouring a beverage similar to wassail over the roots to ensure a bountiful harvest. Usually served in a communal bowl, wassail apparently could be enjoyed either at or away from the dinner table. In fact, the name of the drink is based on the verb wassail, which can mean to drink a toast to someone's health and or carouse. Marticiut suggests that during the Victorian era, it was common for families to invite carolers inside to drink from the communal bowl after they finished singing. Generally served hot, wassail recipes varied from family to family. In the words of Irving, wassail, quote, was sometimes composed of ale instead of wine, with nutmeg, sugar, toast, ginger, and roasted crabs. In this way, the nut-brown beverage is still prepared in some old families and round the hearths of substantial farmers at Christmas. It is also called lamb's wool, end quote. Of course, the crabs Irving was referring to were crab apples. And again, even though both Johnston and Marticiut include wassail as an example of quote-unquote odd or strange Victorian Christmas traditions, I'm not sure what's so strange about it. While I'm admittedly not fond of the idea of inviting strangers into my home or of drinking from a communal bowl, even with people I know, the beverage itself sounds pretty darn delicious and perfect for a cold winter's night. And fortunately, there are lots of recipes online and instructional YouTube videos for intrepid souls who'd like to try their hand at making some wassail of their own. Another example of lesser known practices from this period were parlor games that were very different from those that are still popular today, such as charades. In Snapdragon, a game that was played on Christmas Eve in many a Victorian household, 
you would basically pour brandy or rum over a plate or bowl of fruit, which was often raisins, light it on fire, and try to salvage as many treats as you could without, I presume, injuring life and limb. Johnston describes this game as, quote, both dangerous and spooky, as the reflected flames made those gathered around the table look like demons, end quote. Another popular game, Blindman's Bluff, featured a blindfolded guest trying to catch guests who were either hiding from or tormenting him or her, as described here by Irving. Quote, Master Simon, who was the leader of their revels and seemed on all occasions to fulfill the office of that ancient potentate, the Lord of Misrule, was blinded in the midst of the hall. The little beings were as busy about him as the mock fairies about Falstaff, pinching him, plucking at the skirts of his coat, and tickling him with straws, end quote. I don't like to be touched, so to me, that sounds scary enough. But to make matters worse, the game could become dangerous when you factor in the fact that the blindfolded person may have consumed some wassail or another libation prior to playing, and they were chasing after others and tripping over obstacles that may have been deliberately placed around the house. In Victorian's Christmas parlor games will leave you burned, bruised, and puking, George Pendle cites a very old article that claimed, quote, it is lawful to set anything in the way for folks to tumble over, whether it be to break arms, legs, or heads, tis no matter, end quote. I couldn't find much information on what the winners of these games won, aside from Raisins and Snapdragon, and according to Pendle, quote, for the steadfast Victorian, nothing announced it was Christmas morning better than blistered hands, burned lips, and a scorched palate, end quote. So the knowledge that you'd won a dangerous game and had scars to prove it seems like maybe it was a reward in itself for some. However, even if you managed to make it through one of these games physically unscathed but lost, you might be forced to endure some type of humiliation. Marticiu tells us that the loser was often required to pay a quote-unquote forfeit, such as kissing every man or woman in the room, or kissing someone in so-called rabbit fashion, in which a man and a woman would each put an end of a piece of cotton in their mouths and peck toward each other until they locked lips. Or, the loser might be asked to pretend that they were a Grecian statue and allow the other guests to arrange their limbs in whatever positions the guests chose. Fortunately, not all forms of Christmas entertainment during the Victorian era were reckless or embarrassing. Because scientific and technological innovation was celebrated during the Victorian era, it's not surprising that so-called festive science became a thing during this period. As Rupert Cole tells us in Science and Christmas, a forgotten Victorian romance, Christmas-themed essays, stories, and poems that lauded scientific advancement 
regularly appeared in publications like the Illustrated London News and the Leisure Hour during this time, and ads for scientific Christmas gifts and recreational activities appeared in many newspapers. Among those activities were Christmas lectures geared toward young people, which were started a few years prior to the Victorian era by scientist Michael Faraday, who started giving Christmas lectures geared toward young people and continue to this day. Elaborate demonstrations were also popular, such as one I discussed in my mini-series on Victorian era stage magic and illusions a few months back. Pepper's Ghost, an illusion created by John Henry Pepper at the Royal Polytechnic Institution. According to Cole, Pepper, quote, transformed the Polytechnic into a winter wonderland at Christmas, end quote, by decorating the Great Hall with large trees and scientific gifts that he'd hand out to children. Although that it seems to me that the Polytechnic competed with other exhibition halls, such as the Crystal Palace, each year in terms of who had the bigger tree and the largest crowds. In addition, Cole explains that pantomime, which he refers to as, quote, an exclusively Christmas tradition during the Victorian era, end quote, and other art forms were frequently combined with special effects to produce marvelous stage productions. For example, an 1848 production of E.L. Blanchard's Land of Light, or Harlequin Gas and the Four Elements, featured a pantomime showdown between a group of fairies banished to a quote-unquote goblin coal mine several thousand miles beneath the Earth's surface, and a science character which, spoiler alert, culminated in a spectacular show of artificial lights fueled by highly explosive gases. And starting in the 1830s, the Adelaide Gallery featured oratorios such as Handel's Messiah and Hayden's Creation that were paired with enormous light displays or projections of microscopic organisms. One more Victorian Christmas tradition that I'm going to talk about is the glass pickle ornament, which was hidden inside many Christmas trees for good luck. The person who found the pickle on Christmas morning usually received a special gift or was allowed to open their gifts first. In What is the Christmas Pickle? The history behind this unique tradition Sarah Vincent suggests that unfortunately, no one really knows where this tradition came from. Although it was originally said to be a German tradition, some believe that it was based on a medieval Spanish story that, according to Martisiut, has two versions. In one, a few boys who are traveling home for Christmas stop by an inn for the night only to have the innkeeper stuff them in a pickle barrel and steal their possessions. But fortunately, St. Nicholas stops by the inn and rescues the boys. In the other version, a shopkeeper kidnaps the boys, chops them up, and pickles them in a barrel. When St. Nicholas learns of this horrific act, he prays, and the strength of his faith brings the boys back to life. In the end, Vincent tells us that the tradition might have started with American department stores, such as Woolworths. In the late 1800s, 
these stores imported a large number of glass ornaments shaped like fruits and vegetables from Germany, which historically has been well known for its glass ornaments. And it's possible that salesmen might have concocted an interesting backstory about the ornament's German origins to sell more product. I'm going to wind down my discussion of Victorian era traditions that may not be familiar to many of us here. I did not intend for this to be an exhaustive list. I came across some more unfamiliar customs, but I didn't feel I found enough information on them to include a discussion of them at this point in time. However, I am hoping to find out more and maybe talk about them at some point in a follow-up episode, or if I'm still doing this podcast next year, and I hope to still be, perhaps in my next Christmas episode. But I do want to emphasize once again that just because a few of these traditions ended up on a strange or odd list isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I'm a little disappointed that some of them aren't more widely practiced today. And I think taking a look at the ancient practices Victorians incorporated into some of their customs can remind us why it can be helpful to look at how our ancestors did things. It can help to guide us when we don't have much knowledge or experience to fall back on, And when we're talking about something that's become as commercialized as Christmas in many parts of the world, I think studying the past can give us a new appreciation for what this holiday and time of year are supposed to mean, and to find new meaning in those traditions that have survived. But now, I want to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvarie1 or on Mastodon, which I haven't really been checking lately, at is.nota.live slash at marissad. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13, or you can make a donation on my Linktree page or on the Good Pods app. I would also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Also, if you listen on Spotify, because I'm not sure if it will show up on the other apps, but Anchor allows me to post a question to my listeners, which I tend to do from time to time, in an effort to make this show more interactive. So you might want to check to see if maybe I've left a question there for this episode or maybe some of my recent episodes. If you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending part of this busy time of year with me. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, I also hope you're having a happy, relaxing day. 
and I want to thank you for spending some time with me as well. And if this time of year is difficult for you, know that you're not alone. And I see you, and I get it. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But because I haven't really taken a break since I started this show almost a year and a half ago, I'm planning to put out two mini-sodes in the month of January. So those will be shorter and a little different in format from my normal episodes. But then, in February, I'm hoping to go back to my longer episodes and hopefully do a few more interviews as well. But for now, I'm going to leave you with a short poem that Irving includes in The Christmas Dinner, but it looks like it originally appeared in Poor Robin's Almanac. At this point in Irving's piece, the wassail bowl is making its way around the table, and when it reaches Master Simon, he raises it in both hands and recites this. The brown bowl, the merry brown bowl, as it goes round about a fill. Still, let the world say what it will and drink your fill all out of the deep can, the merry deep can. As thou dost freely quaffa, sing, fling, be as merry as a king and sound a lusty laugher.